Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning, everybody. I have the definitive difference for you this morning between a hymn and a praise chorus through traditional songs in the church and newer praise choruses in the church. These things have been talked about for millennia. I just wanted to say that word. And I I think I've come to the key difference about them. I want to help you with it. An old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended the big city church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, said his wife. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, only different, said the farmer. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The farmer said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a hymn. If on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 Oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, the corn, corn, corn. (laughs) Then if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, well, that would be a praise chorus. The next weekend, his nephew, a young new Christian from the city, came to visit and attended the local church of the small town. He went home, and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the young man, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang hymns instead of regular songs. Hymns, asked his wife. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs, only different, said the young man. Well, what's the difference? The young man said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inanimate, glorious truth for the way of the animals. Who can explain There in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's Son or His reign, unless from the mild, tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad bovine rebellious delight (laughs) have broke free their shackles, their warm pens askewed. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all, my mild Chilliwack sweet corn, have chewed. So look to the bright shining day by and by, where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animals make my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. Then if I were to do only verses 1, 3, and 4 and do a key change on the last verse, well, that would be a hymn. Uh, I've been waiting years to share that with you. 
and it kind of fits today, and so I'm forcing it in. Um, we, we value something here at Central a lot, and that is that we are a multi-generational church. That's not something that just sort of happens. Um, we desire to be that, and we invest um, in our church family to continue to be that. And, and one of the sticking points sometimes um, in a multi-generational church is the idea of the songs we sing. So I talk about this quite a bit with people and, and try and share that um, in a sense, it's really easy to be a church that only sing hymns. If it was written after the 1800s, we don't touch it. We don't use any instrumentation or we only use a piano and that's all we do. There, there's a, there's a, a relative easiness about doing that. It's also really easy in, in one sense to, to have a full band every week, to make the music loud and to sing only the latest song, the new songs. What's really challenging for a church, I think, is um, to say, well, we value being generations who when we gather as a church, the older come across younger brothers and sisters in Christ and younger brothers and sisters in Christ come across older brothers and sisters in Christ, and we think that's a good thing for the family. We think that's a good thing for our spiritual walk. And so when we gather, we try to hold the two. And, and, and what it means to hold the two is that we will sing hymns here. And, and hymns, there actually are a, there are many, many terrible hymns that were written, just so we're aware. Like we think the hymns are the great songs that were... Well, it's the, it's, it's the best handful that are amazing. And we tossed out a ton of just garbage hymns. We just really did. And, and, but these are the ones that stood the test of time that we say, this is singing truth. This is singing about the glory of God. We're singing our theology, and it's rich, and it exalts Christ, and we need to sing. And absolutely, and so we sing those here. And we recognize that for some, when we sing the rich hymns, that it's just, this is, the, this is the expression for me of corporate worship. I love this. I savor this. And they sing their hearts out. For those of you that, that that's not you, my encouragement to you is to read those lyrics because they are so rich. And as you get acquainted with the melody, join in the song. Because you joining in in the old hymn is actually doing so much good for your brothers and sisters in Christ in the room as they hear the room swell with the voices of the church belting out that. At the same time, when the new song is sung, I encourage those that are like, I don't know this song. I don't get why this is so simplistic or what, you know, whatever it might be. I don't, I don't, why are we singing this news? I can't catch it. This melody's tough. Whatever it might be. My encouragement is to, is to as you catch on to it, Try to sing along to it because there are people in the room that this new, fresh expression of their faith in God is it, it, something in this song is just stirring their affection for the Lord. And by hearing you go for it too, is just it serves. See, here's the thing about corporate worship it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about Pastor Tyson and his preferences. Corporate worship is about us as a body giving glory to Jesus Christ. And so our goal is to be multi-generational and to sing both and to have humble-hearted people come along and say, I'm going to participate in all. I'm going to prefer some, but I'm going to participate in all because I'm part of a bigger family. And I so witness that week after week here in this church. I applaud it. I thank you for it. I encourage it all the more. It's a really, really special thing. We're going to talk about worship this morning. And worship is no less than singing, but it's certainly more than that.
We often sell the definition of worship short. When someone is smitten with a prospective partner, it's said that he worships the ground she walks on. In the church, we haven't done much better at using the word worship. We have handed exclusive rights to the meaning of worship as the time the church sings together. Sometimes when I hear people say, oh, I love the worship today, I like to just be annoying, I guess, and say, what do you mean by that? Was it the, the reading of the scripture that you loved this morning or the preaching of the word or the fellowship together or the prayer or was it the singing of corporate worship, the songs? Which part was it? Like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm at it. It, it. I'm talking about the singing, right? But it's like, because we often just, we, we, we characterize worship too often as the singing of songs. So there's a lot of categories to worship. Let me give you a few of them. Or I think this is all of them. Um, corporate worship. The gathering of the church together, there are many facets of our corporate worship. We're participating in many of them this morning. Communion, um, the offering, the, our giving in corporate worship, um, our singing, our praying, our reading of the scriptures, the preaching of the scriptures. This is all corporate worship. Then there's private worship. There's time where you spend time with the Lord in the scriptures, in prayer, and Spending time with God, that's private worship. And then there's family worship, gathering the household together and worshiping God together. We're in a super fun stage in our house do, try, <laughs> trying to do family worship where I'll sit down with the boys and try and read them a story about the love that Jesus has for them and how Jesus is love. And we'll usually get about three minutes in and it usually ends with me being like, you guys, just sit down, shut up, and listen to how much Jesus loves you. Can't you do that for like three minutes? That's family worship at our house these days with little boys. I, I think it blesses them so much. Uh, yes. And then, of course, corporate worship, private worship, family worship. These are some of the acts of worship that we are. are but, but really, overarchingly, um, the, we have lives of worship. Pastor Tyson just talked to us a little bit about our work and how it can bring glory to God. Our working can be worship to God right? All kinds of things, our conversations, our posture, all of these things are worship to God. So before we get back into the Gospel of John, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Romans chapter 12. It's in the New Testament. It comes after the book of Acts. And in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul helps us with this idea of lives of worship, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's your spiritual worship? Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. All of you. So here's the definition I want us to kind of talk through a little bit this morning. Christian worship is the offering of our entire selves to God in response to the giving of himself to us in Jesus. Let me break that down. Firstly, it's Christian worship. The reason I start the definition, because worship isn't simply that, that definition. Everybody worships. We were made to worship, and everybody worships someone or something. We are all worshipers. Everybody on the planet, Christians worship Jesus. So Christian worship is the offering of our entire selves to God. The offering of our entire selves is our acts of worship are a reflection of lives of worship. Our acts of worship, singing of songs, is certainly worship. And it's a part of, if not the overflow, of a life of worship, a broader life of worship. And so uh, our acts of worship are a reflection of our lives of worship, offering our entire selves. Third, our worship is a response. Doesn't, our worship doesn't earn us a thing. It's a response to something that has happened 
Our, our worship is a response to God for who he is and what he's done, namely the finished work of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished for us on the cross, the sin of ours that he bore there, paying the penalty for our sins, the atonement that we could be saved by coming to Jesus Christ. Our worship is a response. I've entitled the sermon Extravagant Worship, and in the, in the dictionary, extravagant means exceeding what's reasonable or appropriate. It's also coined as absurd. Extravagant is absurd. Absurd worship. Exceeding what's reasonable or appropriate worship. At first glance, Christian worship looks like extravagant, absurd, over-the-top worship. But here's the thing. God went to extravagant measures to save us. God in Jesus went exceedingly beyond what's reasonable and appropriate Jesus went to the absurd to save us. He was so extravagant in his love for us that it's simply response of Christians to be extravagant in our response to him. So we're going to look at an extravagant act of worship by someone whose life had been changed by Jesus. So you can now turn to John chapter 12. It'll be on the screen as well. We're like three years into the gospel of John and we're cracking chapter 12. Oh, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're, we're, we're cruising now. So John 12, let me start in the first few verses. Before I do, I just want you to let you know this story of, of a woman named Mary anointing Jesus' feet can also be found. The parallel story is found in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. There's a, another story in Luke chapter 7 about a woman who anoints Jesus' feet. This appears to be a different scenario. She's referred to as a sinner. Her tears are included in this anointing of Jesus' feet, and Jesus' response and the interactions are all different. So in Luke chapter 7, there's a unique story. And in Matthew, Mark, and John, we see the telling of the same story, and we'll look at it in the Gospel of John. Six days before the Passover. Um, so this is, this is mere days away from the Last Supper and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So this just happened. Jesus raised Lazarus back to life from the dead, and then he slipped out of town because things were a little hot. People were after Jesus, and now he's come back later to spend time with them. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha, it's the least they could do. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Let's stop there. Extravagant worship is the natural response to those who receive the gospel, and we witness an act of extravagant worship here from Mary. The famous story of Mary and Martha, of course, is where Martha is slaving away in the kitchen when they're hosting Jesus at an earlier time, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha is lit up about it. <laughs> she's not impressed. She's not happy, and she even comes to Jesus, and like, what's the deal? Get my sister into the kitchen, like, right? And, and Jesus is, essentially says, she's done a good thing. She's at, she's at my feet. She's a disciple of mine. She's learning, and so it's a good thing. Here, now in this context, we pick it up again, and here's kind of another famous story about Mary and Martha, and what do we find? Martha's in the kitchen, but she's not complaining this time. She's grown. It, it seems to be her joy now to serve. And Mary isn't merely sitting at the feet of Jesus this time. She's anointing the feet of Jesus. We are seeing the growth in discipleship 
of both Martha and Mary. Now, what Mary does, the act that she does here, is anoints Jesus' feet. She anoints dirty human feet. At this time, nobody was required to wash um, people's feet in Israel um, who weren't non-Jewish, who weren't Gentile slaves. In other words, even a Jewish slave wouldn't have to wash the feet of their master. And so with that in mind, because it was such a lowly position, such a low job, here Mary is anointing. It says in the other passages that she, she anoints his head, but here it just mentions the feet. She didn't just use the expensive perfume on his head. She used the same valuable bottle on his feet as well, taking this lowly role. But the lowest part of Jesus and this lowly role in that culture is worth the best gift that we can give. And then she goes on to wipe his feet with her hair. In this culture, at this time, no respectable woman would ever appear in public with her hair down. On the day a girl was married, her hair was bound up, and she would no longer be seen in public with her hair flowing down. To be seen in public with your hair flowing down was a sign of an immoral woman. So Mary is kneeling at the feet of Jesus, the feet of Jesus. Nobody did this. Nobody was expected to do this except for non-Jewish slaves, and there she is washing feet, washing the feet of Jesus. She's let her hair down, and now she's wiping the hair of Jesus. This whole picture, all that she's doing, not to mention the very expensive ointment that she is using, is quite the act. Her heartfelt, sacrificial, grateful display of affection was for Jesus, but others caught it and were moved one way or another by it. We'll take a look at how Judas responds in a minute. Mary was not a self-conscious Christian, worried about what others were thinking about her. Mary's love for Jesus was so primary. She was so fixated on him, who he was, all that he had done. It didn't matter to her what others thought. This was Mary worshiping her Savior. Let's move on to John 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor. John gives us this insight into what's going on. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So thirdly, extravagant worship is unnatural to those who reject the gospel. The contrast between Mary and Judas could not be more stark. To know Jesus, to fellowship with him, to hear from him is infinitely valuable. The word became flesh and dwelt among them, and Mary saw the glory of God in Jesus. Mary experienced his power and grace and truth, and she responded appropriately. Judas, on the other hand, missed it. He was infected with worldliness. Judas, while Mary is worshiping Jesus, is doing calculations. And he's thinking to himself, 300? 300 denarii? That's too much. What is she doing? But how do you calculate the cost of love? A denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. The equivalent would maybe be the median income of a Canadian, which is $50,000. Mary's act of worship here was a $50,000 gesture. How do you evaluate, though, 
how much the one who is the resurrection and the life is worth. Scales don't work. Dollar amounts don't cut it. We are simply left to respond to the immeasurable grace and love and life we find in Jesus. And when we do that, no response is ever too lavish. Judas, however, found a dollar amount that he was willing to not worship Jesus with, but betray the Son of God for, and that's 30 pieces of silver, which interestingly enough is worth four months' wages for a laborer. Mary, without thought, is willing to spend a year's salary worshiping Jesus. And we know she'd give far more. Judas is willing to betray Christ for far less. Jesus said in verse 7, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is saying, Judas, if you care about the poor as you should and as I do, you have the rest of your life to serve them and love them well. And Jesus goes on, But I know you, Judas, and you don't love the poor And you don't love me. You love money. 1 Timothy 6, verse 7 seems to almost practically be written for Judas. Although it's written as a warning for many of us as well. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Judas found his worth in money. He longed for it and it blinded him from seeing the worth of Jesus. Jesus is to be valued above all, but Judas placed his value in a far lesser treasure. So that's kind of a framework for Christian worship. Um, Here's an act of worship by Mary that we are to look at, and then here's a critique by Judas of this act of worship by Mary. I want now to make kind of three application points. They're, They're questions I have for you, really and have for myself three questions by way of application from what we have seen. First question I have, is your worship and devotion to Jesus extravagant? Is your worship and devotion to Jesus extravagant? This was not a half-hearted gesture from Mary. This was an act of extravagant worship. Mary was all in in her devotion to the Lord. Can you say the same? Look, I've asked myself this all week. Can I say the same? Do I worship Jesus extravagantly? Mary's response to the love, grace, and teachings of Jesus is one of the purest pictures of adoration that we see in all of Scripture. Do you worship Jesus in comfortable, small dose, moderation, or with extravagant exclusivity? If you find yourself unmoved in worship, unaffected by truth, uninterested in the word of God, uninvolved in the church, with no desire to help those who are in need, it would appear that you're not much like Mary. In Matthew 26, verse 13, also in Mark 14, where Jesus tells this story, he also says this, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Why? Because the church is meant to learn what response to the gospel looks like. 
So wherever the gospel is proclaimed, you know what else is supposed to be proclaimed? The story about Mary's worship. This is what response to the gospel looks like. Extravagant worship. We are to look at it and evaluate our own lives by it. It's expressed in many ways. I need to say that. I need to say it's expressed in many ways because sometimes we, again, we think extravagant in worship, we think the singing of songs and we think, well, I'm not very charismatic and so I don't wave my hands or, you know, dance down the aisle or do all these things and so maybe I'm not an extravagant worshiper. That's far too narrow a view. Some of us could stay here all afternoon and just sing song after song after song and it'd be such an expression, overflow of all that we're feeling in our hearts and we praise God, we can just sing and sing and sing. And others, if they were locked in this room all afternoon, they'd be like, is there, they're starting another song? Oh gosh, how many more songs? Like, it's just, it, it, we should gather and we should sing, but it's not necessarily the expression for all that so hits the heart for 19 songs straight or whatever, Right? And, and, but you'll, you'll leave this place and you'll see someone in need. And, and an expression of your worship is you're going to try and meet that need as best you can because it's from this posture of worship that says, I know that Jesus met me in my poverty and made me rich. So I come at this opportunity to bless someone in need and it's my worship to God as I do it. We could go on and on and on. I was leading a service one time where just before I went on the stage, uh, uh, a woman... Um, dancing during worship with a ribbon, um, which I I've personally found ex extremely distracting, but maybe that's just me. Uh, I, I was just about to go on stage, and she danced right, uh, right, went right by me with the ribbon, just kind of, you know, like that. <laughs> and the whole ribbon, like, brushed across my face. I was like, get that ribbon. But that's, that's her extravagant worship, bless her heart. There's plenty of room for that in the back row. No, I don't know. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Mennonite churches could always handle being a little more charismatic. We would totally embrace that. It's great. <laughs> Rabbit trail. Okay, uh, but um, I could go on and on and on about the form, but, but, but Christian lives are characterized in some category, think broadly, about extravagant worship of their Savior. My life, right, looks that way. If you're a professing Christian here this morning, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Has the pro that profession that I have made in Jesus been examined and evaluated? Is the transforming effect of the gospel evident in my life, in my affection for Jesus and my obedience to him? If not, there is this pleading that I want to do this morning to cling to the cross, to go to Jesus to wake up from the slumber of, of what can sometimes be North American cultural Christianity and arise with genuine, extravagant faith in Jesus and leave this place with genuine affection and obedience. To followers of Jesus in the room, Mary's act makes sense, though serves as a beautiful reminder of the extravagance of devotion that comes from the transformed life. Look, here's what I mean when I say extravagant worship is the natural response to those who receive the gospel. Jesus poured out everything for us. And when we get that, extravagant worship makes sense. What's absurd to someone else makes sense to us. 
In other words, extravagant worship is the natural response to the gospel. Extravagant worship ought to be the normative form of worship as Christians. Is it normative in your life, in my life, in the life of our church? Is it common to be extravagant in our worship, or is it the uncommon, not the norm, but the exception? Followers of Jesus who have encountered the gospel become like Mary in extravagance in their worship. Second question, are you critical of the extravagant worship of others? I just made fun of a flag worshiper, so clearly I am. (laughs) Are you critical of the extravagant worship of others? See, Judas wasn't an outsider, he was an insider, and here he is critiquing openly about what Mary has just done for Jesus. It says in verse 7, again, Jesus said, leave, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. Don't discourage her. Don't infect her. Don't deter her. What she's doing is beautiful and faithful. The same is true for us. We're not to be the people who discourage or deter or infect extravagant worship, but be participants in it and encourage it. In 2 Samuel, we see the story of David. I think that they, they had just won a battle against the Philistines or something like that. And they're taking the Ark of the Covenant, and David is dancing like a crazy man, I guess. Like he's, he's dancing in front of the Ark, and he's not wearing appropriate kingly attire. He's not wearing much, and he's just dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And when they get to town, his wife looks out the window and is horrified at what she sees. And she goes to him and shares her horror about what she has just witnessed, that David, not wearing his kingly garments, but wearing far less, just dancing in the street. And, and she says, what are you doing? What kind of example are you to the servants? What kind of example are you to, in, to the female servants and what you're wearing and how you're acting? How, what are you doing? And David responds, my worship isn't, has nothing to do with them. My My worship is to God. It's all for Him. And he goes on to say, and I'll become even more undignified than this. Watch me. Because it's for God. And I will be extravagant in my worship of God. But there she was to be the critic. I wish this wasn't a true story, but it is. I know of a a church um, where, where the pastor in the church just deep desire to reach the community for the Lord, just to reach out. We often ask the question here, what if, what if Central just disappeared from Chilliwack and from Agassiz? Would they even know? That's an important question that we regularly ask because we want there to be a resounding yes because this church goes out of this place and serves it and loves it and reaches it and it would, there would just be this void if it ever left. And so that's a question this pastor is asking and, and, and he has this good intention, this desire, I want to reach this community for the Lord. And he started to share this with the council at the church and uh, he was sharing with them, you know, I, just, I, I want to reach out in some practical ways and my hope is that people will come to the Lord And one of the people on the board said, wait a minute, but what if many of them, what if a lot of them come to know Jesus and get saved? We're not a very big church. We might get outnumbered. How are we going to do discipleship? We shouldn't do it. Pastor, don't worry about out there. Pastor us in here. You should read Acts chapter (laughs) 2. 
where there's 150 Christians at that time, and Peter gets up and starts to preach, and 3,000 people get saved. Talk about a logistical nightmare for discipleship. Peter, what's your discipleship track? What are we going to do with these people? Like, they figured it out, and the church was built <laughs> and thrived across the nations. Somebody's response to the gospel, this is good news, I've got to go tell it, being squashed. How can, what if people get saved? <laughs> Say, what? What are we here for? What a discouragement of extravagant worship and a desire to reach. I've heard of young missionary families where before they leave to a far land, people will tap them on the shoulders and say, you're taking your kids there? What kind of parent are you? Put them in such a dangerous place, a place with poverty. You love your kids? You think you're a good parent? Like, really? This is the insiders in the church. They're a blessing, I guess, to the missionaries as they go overseas. People so amazed by what God has done for them, this unmerited favor of who am I? And Lord, you've come and you've saved me. I've got to go and tell. You're going to go do that? Wouldn't be a good parent if you did that. Maybe more to outsiders than insiders, but insiders as well in terms of in, in, in the church family. Some people are stunned by the financial generosity of those who are extravagant in their worship that way. What are you doing? Why are you giving so much away? You could retire early. You could vacation more. Your house could be bigger. You're giving that much away? Are you insane? But just like with Mary, who had a year's worth of wages that she didn't even think poured it out at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because she had been transformed by the gospel. That's why. Are you critical of the extravagant worship of others? I plead with you not to be. I plead with you to actually learn from them, not critique them. I want to learn from you. I observe you regularly, many of you, in your extravagant worship of Jesus, and I'm floored by it. I'm inspired by it. I'm convicted by it. I, I'm so amazed at the extravagance in worship that I see all over the place here. My encouragement this morning is don't discourage it, don't infect it, don't deter it, but be a participant in it and be an encourager of it. It's the mark, one of the marks of the church that we're extravagant in our worship. Third question, last question. Do you extravagantly worship something more than Jesus? Is there something other than Jesus that you worship extravagantly? Judas did. In his case, it was money. And that's no longer, an, that's no less a temptation or an idol in our culture than it was then, if not more. Brooke Foss Westcott said, temptation commonly comes through that for which we are naturally fitted. A lot of times where the temptations come in our lives are not these outside challenges or these outside temptations, but they're the things we're good at, the things we enjoy, the things that are close to home. They can very quickly, very easily become idols for us. Our temptations often lie in what we're good at. And those things that bring us accolades, usefulness, joy, can be the things that we take 
glory in for ourselves rather than glorify God for. That shift can happen very easily. See, Judas is the one who keeps the money bags for Jesus' itinerant ministry. What, what keeps them eating and housed as they go is, is what's in the money bags that's given for Jesus' ministry. And Judas carries those. Of the twelve, Judas is the one who carries the money bags. He was the accountant of the group. He was probably good at it. He, he, he knew how to handle it. But then it became his God, and he started to steal from it. And then he betrayed his Savior for it. Do we not do the same? In so doing, do we not settle for far less? Do we not get more excited about fleeting things than Jesus? Do we not show our devotion to the things we find the most personal success in, that we invest our resources in most, our time in most, our joy in most? And then out of courtesy or ritual or guilt, attend church, put something in the offering basket, volunteer here, I guess, begrudgingly. I know I should. We don't call that betrayal like Judas. And sure, that's extreme. He literally gave Jesus up to be killed. But do we not betray Jesus when we call ourselves Christians but find far more joy in our ambition and our comfort and in fleeting things, lavishing every comfort on ourselves and sparing no extravagance for God. Brennan Manning, I love Brennan Manning. He wrote, the temptation of the age is to look good without being good. That's a profound statement. He wrote that just a number of years ago, but, but in this last generation. He wrote, The temptation of the age is to look good without being good. And if the temptation of the age is to look good without being good, here's what it leads to. It leads to death, not to life. See, Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. And he's saying something that appears holy. Shouldn't it have been sold to be given to the poor? Wouldn't that have been a far more righteous act? But it's all posturing. Because his heart was far from God. He, he, he tried to look good without being good. And for Judas, it led to death. And for everyone, it leads to death. Judas handed Jesus over for the equivalent of 15 grand. Money was his chief affection, and right after getting that bag of silver in his hands, he realized that it didn't satisfy. If your joy, your satisfaction, your extravagance in life is most noted about something other than Jesus... It'll happen today, it'll happen next week, it'll happen at some point in this lifetime or in the life to come that you will discover in the moment when you think you're grasping what you've cherished, it does not satisfy. It's never enough. That's what Judas discovered the instant the silver was in his hands. Because nothing other than Jesus ever truly will. And the same is true for you. So this, I know it's a pointed question and I ask it to myself as well. Where does extravagance lie in your life? Jesus or somewhere else? Let me conclude. John here in in John chapter 12 is beginning the second section of his gospel with this passage because it marks the start of Jesus' road to the cross, his preparation for burial. That's the view he has in mind, and it's taking a a, a clear turn, and he starts that turn, that shift, the second section of the gospel, right here. Because in anointing Jesus with ointment, Mary was performing an act far more significant than she knew. 
John, the gospel writer, looks back and sees clearly what was going on. It was preparation for burial. That's what Mary was doing. She didn't know it. For her, it was an extravagant act of worship. Much like the end of John chapter 11, where the high priest Caiaphas stands up and it says, he prophesies, it's better that one should die for all the people than that all the people should die. But what he meant was that it's better that we keep our jobs, that this system stay in place. It's better that Jesus die than this whole thing get blown up. That's what he meant by it. But the true prophetic word was where it that God agreed it is better that one should die than that all the people should die, that Jesus should go on to die. Yes, die for all the people, that we may have life in him. In the same way, Mary is simply worshiping Jesus in extravagance in what seems natural to her. But what's also going on is it's preparing Jesus for burial, and he's the only one at the time who knew it. But John, the gospel writer, could look back and see it, and that's why he uses this language in verse 7 and 8. To anoint the person with fragrances was to keep the smell of decay off longer, and that was the practice. Jesus understood this to be an act of preparation for burial because his crucifixion was at hand. Here's what I think Jesus is saying when he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The container's been broken. Judas has already said 300 denarii have been wasted, so she's not keeping any of it, clearly. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. It wasn't the perfume that Jesus wanted her to keep until his burial. It had been poured out. It was her gratitude, her devotion, her belief that Jesus is the resurrection and the life so that when he's in the grave, she doesn't give up but believes. Let her keep it. Let her keep that heart, that posture, that hope, that belief that she can look back and remember that I rose her brother from the grave and death will be defeated through me, that she, he can believe, she can believe that while he sits in the grave. That's what Jesus wanted for her. And that's very timely for us as well because we've just entered the season of Lent, right? This 40-day period of looking towards, before looking towards Easter, looking towards the cross. Like Jesus in this text, we have the imminent death of Jesus on our hearts in this season. Letting the reality sink in that because of our sin, the cross needed to happen. Jesus knew and we know that the resurrection was coming. But the significance of death and burial comes first. Then we celebrate resurrection. And the celebration will be sweeter for having walked through the wilderness and weightiness of Lent. So let's use this time wisely, this preparatory time, to contemplate the cross together. No greater season than the season of Lent to do that. No, better, no greater act than to take communion together as a church, to, to sit in that for a little while. Let's contemplate the cross together. Let's contemplate the cost. Let's, I invite you to just, in, in the quietness for a few moments, And then as we begin to sing as well and take communion, just to ponder the questions I've been asking. Is my life characterized by extravagant worship of Jesus? And if it's not, come to him. He loves you. He'll equip you. He'll stir in you. He'll draw that out of you if that's your heart's desire. So spend time contemplating those things. Here's the way that communion will work. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, you've surrendered your life to him, You are invited to come and receive this. If you're exploring faith in Jesus, don't feel weird about that. Feel free to just sit and observe and and take it in. Um, And also, 
really clear instructions given in the Bible about how we take communion. If, if there are wrongs that have not been made right with a brother or a sister, if there's a, 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 a major kind of issue at hand, here's an encouragement. Maybe, maybe leave this, let these, don't take, participate this morning, but go from here and make that wrong right with a brother or sister in Christ where, where you have a wrong that you need to make right. And after you've done that, come back next month celebrating and participating. So there's an opportunity as well. So use this time. There'll be a couple of songs and uh, invite you to contemplate the cost, the good news of the gospel that Jesus died to save sinners. I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. Our, our, our prayer team will be in different places. Love praying with you. Part of gathering together is praying together. So feel free to be prayed for while you're up and about. Um, we'll have communion servers up as well. Um, different parts of the room. And uh, we'll just spend some time in response. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you poured out everything for us. We shouldn't be critics of or surprised by the pouring out of a jar of ointment in response. Lord, I confess that my... My life is not characterized by extravagance towards you. I, I lean in many ways towards extravagance in so many things that are not you. So, Lord, I ask for your help by your Spirit that you would move among us this morning. Make us the kind of place made up of the kind of people who are extravagant in our devotion and worship of you. What you have done, the lengths that you have gone to save, blow my mind. You are so good. So we come confessing sin, repenting. We come thanking. And we come and we physically respond to all that you've done in this time of communion, singing and prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.